Welcome to The Details with Elliot Connie and Adam Frower. This is a podcast where we examine the intersection between solution-focused brief therapy and current topics going on in the world. And we do this because we genuinely want the world to be a better place. So enjoy and come examine the details with us. Welcome to episode two of The Details with Adam and Elliot. So, I mean, I don't really know what to say, but I, I do know the details that we need to talk about today, just as a, as a human, as a world. And I, I think I'll start with, I wanna talk about what it's been like to be a black man over the past little bit of time here. I logged on Facebook one day, not too long ago. And just like everybody else, um, like Facebook is a bit of a like distraction. Uh, sometimes when I see clients, I get on Facebook between sessions just to like see a cute picture of a friend's dog. I have, I have a friend named Paul who just bought a dog and I love like logging on to Facebook and watching the dog. And my best friend Kyle's got a family in Massachusetts and you know, you see pictures and I just log on Facebook just to see stuff. And you, you know, Adam, how like Facebook autoplays, like when you're just scrolling a video that you did not click on, just autoplays. And I'm on Facebook, killing time. And this video is on my newsfeed and autoplays. And it's a video of a black man jogging. There is nothing to indicate to me that this is any unusual thing. This is before the news broke, this is before anything. I'm just on Facebook, I see a black dude jogging. And for whatever reason, like I stop on this video, I don't click on it, so there's no sound or anything. It's just video auto-playing and a black dude jogging. And as I watch the video, I watch men get out of two pickup trucks one of them carrying a shotgun and shoot him. And I was like, what just, like, what did I just see? So I click on this video and this time I watch it with sound and I, I, is this real? And then I later find out his name is Ahmaud Arbery and he was killed for like jogging and the, the kind of racial undertones that this was. And it was like, a trauma trigger for all of the like racial injustices I've experienced. Because what I see when I look at stuff like that is all the times that I have come close from interacting with racists. And in one case, I interacted with a racist who had a gun who pointed the gun at me when I went and visited an an employee's house. The next door neighbor ran out with a gun and pointed it at me. And it just made me think like, I could have been Ahmaud Arbery. Like it is that close. And then before you heal from one of these experiences, it happened again. Like I was on Facebook tooling around and this time I'm a bit wiser and I see a police officer kneeling on a man's neck and I'm like, oh no, I'm just not watching a man have his life drained from him and find out that that man's name is George Floyd and uttered those horrible words, I can't breathe. And for eight minutes and 46 seconds, you watch his life come from him. It's, it's just like a tremendous trauma trigger. And I get news that there's going to be like riots and Black Lives Matter riots and, and those sorts of things. My mother lives in Chicago. Uh, Chicago was the place where really, really difficult race riots took place in 1968 after MLK was assassinated. And I was concerned with, about my mom. So I voiced to my aunt, I was really concerned, an aunt of mine, I was really concerned about my mother. And I wish I could be there, but I'm afraid to fly. And I kind of jokingly said, maybe I'll just rent a car and drive. Now, this aunt had just retired, and she said, 
well, if you're serious, I can go anywhere at any time now that I'm retired. I'll ride with you. And two days later, I rent a car and drive a thousand miles to be with my mom to make sure she's safe during these riots. And the interesting thing is, I had never been in a city where there were active riots taking place. And by the way, when I say riots, I just mean civil upheaval. Like, I'm, I'm not talking necessarily about rioters versus looters versus protesters. I'm just talking about the environment of civil upheaval. I had never been in a situation like that. And I was out with my aunt. Chicago is like the best city in the world to get food. And I was out with my aunt. We were, we were going out to get food. And it's two o'clock in the afternoon. So we ignorantly felt like the civil upheaval is not going to happen at two o'clock in the afternoon. And another one of my family members said like, will you stop by this restaurant and like this fast food place and get something for me while you guys are out? Like, sure. Happy to stop there and get something for you while we're out. And we notice people putting boards on these windows of these businesses, a police presence, like I cannot fully describe to you and everything closing. It's like, you're watching it happen. And I look over at my aunt and she is overtly anxious. Like, I want to go home. 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 Uh, not home, Texas, but like where we were staying in Chicago. And I later realized she was experiencing trauma triggers because she lived in Chicago during the 1968 race riots after MLK was assassinated. And it was obvious to me, like we are living in, in new and extraordinary times. And I think it's something that we have to talk about. And I also think it's something that solution focused therapy can make a difference in, actually. So I'm interested, Adam, to talk to you about like what your experience has been like going through this to talk about what you're noticing and where we can go from here just as a culture. It's obviously a really different experience for me in the in these moments. It's different I think for a, a couple of reasons and I think obviously first of all being a white person at a time like this means that I don't necessarily feel that fear and you talked a couple you mentioned a couple of times while you were talking just now you mentioned the term racial trauma, right? And these, I had these trauma triggers. And as you were talking, I, I realized yet again, I don't really have those. But it, it's also interesting because similar to you, right? I was just looking on Facebook and I know that'll be a surprise to you because you always give me grief about not being on Facebook. Um, 100%. But per periodically, I get on and I, and I just look around, right? And the same experience that, I, that you had I had, um, where I stumbled upon both of those experiences with Ahmad and then with George. And one of the things that really struck me about Ahmad's murder is that it was very geographically close to where I am. Where he was and where he was murdered really is only about an hour and a half away from where I am. And so one of the things, I'm not originally from the South. I'm not originally from this part of the country. I'm from, you know, about 1,500 miles away from here. So it's quite far from where I grew up. And so to be in a place where something so tragic overtly happened was really kind of a new experience to me. The awareness of how close it was really was something new to me. And then like you mentioned, right, really quickly after that, kind of experiencing George Floyd and his passing, really kind of, it was almost like a one-two punch. 
And one of the things that really struck me this time, I guess two things. The, the first thing that really struck me is I had the option. If I chose, I could turn off the news. I could turn off the stories. I could turn off and in some sense, separate myself out. I could have in essence said, that didn't happen to me. It didn't happen to anybody like me. I don't know what that's like. And I could have turned it off. And that, that really struck me this time is that I had to make a deliberate decision, in essence, to stay wounded by that experience. That was one of the things that really kind of took me off guard is that if I chose to, I could excuse that as just news, right? Of just some, some other tragedy that happened, but something that I couldn't particularly relate to. The other part that really struck me about these incidences is that this time I have three children and each of those children now become aware of world events in a way that they haven't previously, just simply because of their age, right? They're nine, 12, and 15. And so I felt as a parent, a real obligation to help my children make sense of this, especially since Ahmad was um, killed here in our own state, right? And, and so I remember having a conversation. We tend to eat dinner together every night. That's something that's really important to us. And so I remember one night we sat down and we were eating dinner and I started having this conversation and I started telling, um, especially my nine-year-old, about this man who was jogging and jogging not very far away from where we were. And he stopped in front of a house that was for sale. And whether he was stopping you know, because he was out of breath or whether he was stopping because he wanted to look at this house that was for sale, it didn't, it didn't really matter. He stopped, right? He stopped running. And I remember telling my daughter that two men came and they shot him. And she had a lot of questions about why they would do that and what they were, were they scared of him? And really getting into some of those fine details around they probably weren't scared of him as a person but they were scared of what he stood for as that person and that we have a long history of white people being taught from really early on that they needed to be scared of black people and really struggling through those conversations saying things that felt really really hurtful and hearing the responses from all three of my children, but particularly this nine-year-old who was saying, well, could that happen to, and she named one of the kids in her class, could that happen to him? And I said, well, I, I hope it couldn't happen to him, but very likely it could happen to him. And like we mentioned in the last episode, right, you come, Elliot, you come to our house and you spend time with us and my children for all intents and purposes, consider you their uncle. And I remember Julia saying, could that, could that happen to Elliot? And that was like one of the worst questions that I could have been asked. And so then we switched our conversation and I, rem and I had to tell her about a time where you and I were driving from one city in Texas to another city in Texas. And you said, I may ask you to drive. 
and it, we were in your car, we were in your state, and there was still a sense of discomfort and a lack of safety that you experienced that I didn't experience. And I remember having to talk to my nine-year-old and say, yeah, that, that could easily happen to Elliot. And she kind of got teary-eyed, which if you know her, she doesn't get teary-eyed very often. She kind of got teary-eyed and she said, but that's not fair. And I remember in that moment having the thought, it's not fair that I'm having to have this conversation with you, but it's not fair that the first time I'm having to have this kind of a conversation with you is when you're nine years old. And when other kids who don't look like you have to have this conversation for probably the 100th time by the time they're nine years old. And so I think these, experience, these recent experiences really bring to light for people who look like me, who are white people. I think maybe for the first time, we're saying it's not fair that people who look like you have had to have this experience many, many times. And for all intents and purposes, this is one of the first times that we're having to have this experience. Yeah, like, and it's so weird because I never thought about that either. Like, I remember being really young, I think around six or seven, uh, when a babysitter that I had told the landlord, the, so the place where my babysitter lived, she didn't own the house. It was a, someone who owned the house that, you know, in Massachusetts language, we refer to as a landlord. And the landlord found out she was babysitting black kids, me and my two brothers, and told her that she has to stop babysitting these kids or she will be evicted. So we stopped going to that house. The woman ended up moving, but I mean, very few people can handle just being like thrown out on the street tomorrow. So we stopped going there. She found a new place to live and that was that. And I remember asking my mom, how come we don't go to Mrs. So-and-so's house? My mother, I remember, I'll never forget watching my mother like pause for a minute. Like, how do I answer this from my like six-year-old? And that was the day I learned I was black and being black meant something other than just the hue of my skin. That was there I realized, oh, so sometimes being black sucks. And I have had consistent reminders of that since, but that was the first time I ever experienced it. That was the first time I ever got it. And, and it's like, so what do we do with this? Like, what do we, what do we do with this? What does it all mean? And I, and I think one of the things, okay, so I have a question for you. And then I want to talk about like, what is happening post? Because I actually think this is different. I, I, have, I have lived in a world, obviously not great, this is not good, but I've lived in a world where there have been a lot of black men, Eric Gardner, Trayvon Martin, unarmed black men have been assassinated for a very long time. Just to tell you a really quick story, I had an employee several years ago named Leslie, and I used to work in my office until about 10 o'clock at night, and Leslie, at the time, um, she, she's got a child now. She no longer works for me, but she had a child now. And at the time she didn't have a child and Leslie was a significant night out. And we, we were setting up our payroll system and it wasn't electronic yet. And Leslie needed her paycheck. So I said, I will just bring it by when I get off work, I'll just bring it by your house. And it was like 10 o'clock at night, you know, I was seeing clients until late and I dropped by her house. And, and this is like, I mean, this is not in like, rural Mississippi. This is in like 
very urban Arlington, Texas. And this is not in 1961. This was in 2000, probably 13 or 14 at the time. And I pull up in a BMW and I'm wearing a suit or, or at least I'm wearing like dress slacks, a shirt and like a long winter coat, like a professional long winter coat. I get out of my car and this white kid runs over to me and he puts a rifle in my face. And I have no idea what to do. Like, I, I don't know what's happening. So I stood like this and he just points it at me. And he doesn't say anything. He puts the rifle down and then he just went back in his house. I go into Leslie's house and I'm angry and I'm shaken and I don't know what to do. And I tell Leslie what just happened. Leslie gets angry. Her neighbor is like a racist. Her neighbor is paranoid. And apparently he has a camera system where he saw me pull up and I don't know what triggered him to run out and put a gun in my face, but he did. So we decide, Leslie and I decide to call the police. So we call the police and the police show up and they defend the kid. The police show up and say, well, his house has been vandalized a lot recently. So that's why he did that. And I was like, but I almost died. Like, all he had to do was pull the trigger and I would not be here right now. I can't believe you're explaining this away to me. Like he put a gun in my face. And the police officer's message to me was basically, but he didn't mean it. Nothing happened. No harm, no foul. And I, I just remember like how crazy that was. So this could be anybody at any time, really. And I want to ask you a question. And then I want to ask you about what is making this different. So like as a black man, I want to share with you what I'm noticing is different. As a, as a white man, I want to hear what you're noticing is different. Uh, but my first question to you is, like you just said, you could have easily just checked out of this whole conversation. You could have just been like, I'm turning off the news, I'm banning my kids from social media, and like, this is just news that does not impact me. Why didn't you? Like, what, what made you say, I'm going to participate in this conversation? It's hard to know exactly, but I, I think I would say feeling like it was coming closer and closer and closer. We, Becca and I try really, really hard to not avoid any conversation. We made an agreement really early on when we decided that we were going to have a family that any time our children asked us a question, we would simply answer the question. We would just give them the information that they were asking for and felt like that would, that would instill trust from them in us and that would help them to know, in essence, that anything that our kids encountered, we wanted to be able to be the first people to influence their knowledge of that topic. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's the decision that we made. And I think that as our children have gotten older, one of the things that that has kind of morphed into is that we know they're gonna go out into this world. They're gonna encounter really, really difficult things. And we want them to be prepared to do that. And so knowing that they were going to, especially in this region of the country, encounter this, they, they have encountered this. They have mentioned noticing differences. We just made a commitment that this is something that we needed to help prepare them for and help 
really, if at all possible, help them to formulate views that just because we come from a lot of privilege doesn't mean that other people aren't valuable. And so I think having made that commitment way before this process made having this convert this particular conversation just a necessity but also something that we were committed to so i think it was a i think it was something a decision that we made long ago that was just playing out now it wasn't a decision that we were making in this moment right so let's talk about some some differences because i have never seen I want to be careful how I say this. I have never, I want to be accurate how I say this. I have never seen black voices taken this seriously mm. and leading towards actual policy change. So to give you an example, most people are aware that Colin Kaepernick, a professional football player in 2016, mostly in response to like the Trayvon Martin and the Eric Gardner murders, decided to take a knee during the national anthem in protest of these atrocities. And he has not played professional football since. And now, and it was such an interesting thing to watch, a bunch of NFL players made a Zoom video and they said, we need the NFL to say these things. We're sorry for the way we handled this before. We will listen differently and we will support NFL players who want to take a knee. And the next day, the commissioner of the NFL made a video and said exactly what the NFL players had asked him to say. So four years ago, a player protesting led to him being ousted from the league, when four years later, these voices were heard. NASCAR has removed Confederate flags from their events. And that was because there is one African-American NASCAR driver. That driver said, here is my request. And NASCAR responded, it, responded to it within days of the one black driver making the request. Aunt Jemima is being removed from a syrup bottle and renamed. The Southeastern Conference, uh, which is an athletic conference associated with colleges here in the United States, has said until Mississippi removes the Confederate flag emblem from their state flag, they will not host any championship events in the state of Mississippi. So like the, I believe it's New Mexico, I might have that wrong, but police chief in New Mexico said he is now requiring his offers to officers to intervene. It's now policy. Their officers must intervene whenever they see a police officer overstepping their abusing people they're arresting. These are just examples of actual true policy change. And I can't remember any policy change ever happening. And, and to be quite frank, America's not good at policy change. We're really good at thoughts and prayers. You know, like there's a, a mass shooting. We don't change policy. Do you know the one time in American history where gun restrictions were enacted quickly and swiftly? The only time it's ever happened in American history is when Nat Turner led a revolt of slaves. Very quickly, they passed a law that says black people, slaves cannot own guns. Like that was a one time. Now we have people walk into a school and murder children. And if you even hint at the idea that let's, let's restrict some people's access to guns, it's like this crazy thing. So we've become a, a country just good at like something bad happened, thoughts and prayers. 
something's different this time because it's actually leading to policy change. And I don't know why. I can tell you I appreciate it. I think it's a very good thing. I have been discriminated against in the solution-focused field, and I'm receiving emails. Like, the week I drove to Chicago, I probably received 100 emails from people either expressing support for, for me, admitting that they've done something wrong and apologizing for it, or apologizing if they had ever done something wrong. And I appreciate it. Like it is, it is, this is a whole different experience. I can't put my finger on exactly why it has led to this. I mean, I have, I have theories and, you know, hypothesis as to why, but it is interesting to me. And I feel like we have a window for actual change here and windows close, you know what I mean? So I feel like, like, we have to work hard to make sure this window stays open and stays open forever. And I heard somebody talk about this and I'm gonna steal this idea and I can't cite the person because I can't remember who it was, but it's like working on social justice is kind of like doing sit-ups. Hmm. Like you never get to a point where you're like, I'm done doing sit-ups. I did a hundred sit-ups, so I don't have to do sit-ups anymore. It's like when you work on your physical physique, it's a process that never ends. And I think when you work on like the racial biases that lead to some of this stuff and you work on the social justice issues, it's like social justice sit-ups. Like we, you never just say, I've run enough miles, so I'm done with miles. You have to treat this as like fitness. We have to accept this is our journey and we can't ever give up. We have to just keep working at it. But something is different now. So I guess my question to you is, have you noticed? <laughs> and what are your thoughts about it? Because this is different. There's policy change, more than just thoughts and prayers. There's actually stuff happening. Yeah, I, I mean, how, how could you not notice? So yeah, absolutely, I've noticed. And as you walked through kind of some of those monumental differences and changes, right? I, I mean, they're big, big changes, but also they're, they're little, right? Like the University of Virginia, UVA, they also just changed their logo, right? And their logo includes two swords that kind of cross at the bottom. And they just changed basically the handle of the two swords. Basically, they're making the change because the particular swords that they had chosen had connections to slave ownership previously. And right. I, I never would have known that had they not made that choice um, and, and made that announcement. And I think in some sense, the change isn't just kind of these massive big changes. I think some of the changes, and I think this is where part of it kind of intersects with, with this particular podcast and write the details. I think in some sense, each person, each entity, each business is now looking at themselves and they're saying, what role do we play in perpetuating the inequality? Whether that, whether that stems from hundreds of years ago or whether that stems from an incident that's going on yesterday, now, now we're all kind of looking and we're saying, what do we do that perpetuates this in our society from happening? We're beginning to look at very small details and we're beginning to say, we need to change even the most minute things from the handle of a sword on an emblem for one particular college. Um, right. And I think it's the combination of, of all of these little details coming together that's in essence making a social movement i think that's a, a part of it i think another part of it is 
particularly here in the United States, we are tired. We are worn down from divisiveness, from criticism, from, I would go as far as to say hatred, right? We can only keep that up so long. And I think another way that we're beginning to look at the details, and this I think really intersects with solution focused is we're beginning to look at language and we're beginning to look at rhetoric. So much of the inequality and so much of discrimination and oppression is happening in the most minute language. And sometimes it's very subtle and sometimes it's, sometimes it's just overt and it's just, it just smacks you in the face. But it is in individual tiny little words and we're beginning to pay attention to those little tiny words. And we're beginning to say those words are unacceptable and we're not gonna do that. And it, which I think brings me to the third point of why I think it's different this time. And I think it's different because we're holding each other accountable for those little tiny details. We're starting to say, especially people from privilege, right? We're starting to hold each other accountable and we're starting to say, you know what, I as a person of privilege, I'm not going to stand for you as a person of privilege using that particular word or using that particular image or insinuating that specific thing. And so I think all of the little tiny details mixed with all of the moments of holding each other accountable is really what's creating this phenomenon of this time it's going to be different. It just feels good to be heard as a, as a community. Like one of the hard things, I'm a fan of football, American football. And um, I happen to like a team that sucks every year, the Detroit Lions, but I'm a fan of American football. And when Colin Kaepernick did that, um, I remember feeling like a source of pride because the American flag means something different to everybody. Like, and I don't mean to denigrate the American flag. America is a country that I was born in, raised in. I love America. i I proudly say I'm an American, but you know, like when the allies won world war two and there are all these pictures of the soldiers returning home to like parades and confetti. Do you see any black soldiers there? The black soldiers were in world war two, but we didn't come home to the same country. Like we didn't come home to the same rights and privileges. So that flag means something differently. Like it stands for freedom and and opportunity but it also to us stands for oppression and inequality and systemic racism that is still present in 2020 and i don't know why it's been so hard for people to acknowledge that flag is a complicated thing for me like i can remember being or complicated thing for our community like i remember being in the fifth grade and studying what we called social studies but it's like you know elementary school history and we're talking about the like the declaration of independence and it says all men are created equal and this was signed in 1776 and I remember as a eight-year-old fifth grader whatever I was I was quite advanced so I was actually in the fifth grade I graduated from high school having barely turned 17 so I was a little bit younger whatever but I remember being in the fifth grade and saying to my teacher if all men are created equal and this document was signed in 1776 how was there slavery until 1863? Because that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. 
when like you have to explain to an eight-year-old they didn't consider you a, in the as a man like they didn't consider when they say all men created equal you didn't fall into the category of men and that doesn't make sense to you know an eight-year-old's brain fifth grader's brain so it doesn't doesn't compute so like yeah 1776 is a great day that was the year our country got its independence and that was the year that you know many people from european culture can associate with it's when we achieved freedom but i think we'd ask you to realize that's not the day we achieved freedom and that flag means something different that document means something different to us and not that we like it any less but there certainly is a complicated relationship between an african-american and the history of this country i think it goes back to what we talked about in the last episode as well and i think that it's about not trying to make everybody believe or seem the same, right? But in some sense, it's completely accepting people's difference. And that gets to their difference in experience of the exact same, in this case, same symbol or same document or same event, right? That the murder of Ahmad or George, it's the same experience but it's a different experience for every single person. And I think part of what's making this different is that we're taking the time to say, I recognize that what my reality of this experience is and what your reality of this experience is, is that it's different. And we're not trying to say, you need to have the experience that I'm having or your experience is wrong. It's not happening, it's not true. But in some sense we're saying, it's okay that you have a different reality of what this means. It's okay that the American flag means something different to you than it means to me. Um, that doesn't make us mortal enemies. It doesn't make us any less, you know, in this case, American. In reality, it doesn't make us any less human. It actually makes us more the same, that we are all trying to figure out this human experience and that it's, it's colored by a lot of different things. Yeah, and I've been screaming, well, the very first time I mentioned to the Solution Focus community that I'm experiencing a different level of treatment is in 2011. And I've been very consistent in saying like, look, I'm getting unfair treatment from the Therana Nelsons of the world who told me uh, the Solution Focus community is a house that I'm not welcomed in. I'm getting very different treatment from the Michael Durant of the world who sent me harsh emails telling me that they want me to stop. He wants me to stop sending emails to my followers. I'm getting very different treatment from the Frank Thomases of the world who contacted my graduate program and tried to get me removed from a PhD program. I'm getting very different treatment of the Solution Focus Brief Therapy Association board who didn't want me involved in a project and put stipulations involved. Like, like these are real things that like actually happen. Like these people tried to end my career and it's like, this is not okay. And, and the weird thing is, and as a black man, you end up kind of embarrassed about this. Like when I first came into this profession, I did not anticipate experiencing racism because you feel like, A, this is a room full of helpers. B, you feel like this is a room full of like helpers who do this thing based upon positivity as how I understood solution focused at the time. And C, it's kind of like access to this room has nothing to do with race. As long as you have the right degree and the right credentials, you're in. But then to realize like racism even exists here was incredibly hurtful. 
like incredibly, incredibly difficult and, and hurtful. But it also feels quite good because some of those people have had a change of heart-ish because the environment has changed. Like the world has changed around them. And, you know, like some of you are going to retire and just age out of the field. And uh, some of you are going to try to make amends because I'm now like the, the face of this approach. I now have this really big following and people listen to me. And now like I have to play nice with Elliot. But it's just like so how do we eradicate our world and our field of these things? Mm. And I think you said something that you, and you have been, you have been here for a really long time, but it just seems like other non-black people are now, it's like white people holding white people accountable to the treatment of non-white people. I'm not sure in my 43 years of life, I've ever seen that to the degree that I'm seeing it now. I think it is, I think it is a big deal. And, and the, the examples I just listed, I could go on. I could go on and on and on. Like it's, it's, not, it's not a one-off. And, and it hurts when like no one stood up and said anything. And I think now that's changed. I think if some of those things were to happen today, there would be other white people holding the white person who's treating me poorly accountable. I think that's a wonderful change. And I'm just thinking like, how do we keep that change going? Like, how do we do that? Yeah, I don't, I have a response, but then I also have a question for you. I think, again, I think the response is exactly why we started this podcast in, in the first place, right? And it's to, I guess, two things. One, to continue to keep the conversation alive. So much of this happens in the conversation and in the details of the conversation. I think really it comes down to being really vigilant of those tiny little details that, that can be hurtful, that can be oppressive. And we all have blind spots. And so holding each other accountable to those blind spots, what you see, I may miss. What I see, you might miss. And so when we're all really diligent about holding each other accountable, then together we're better, right? My question for you is, in some sense, we all have something to learn from you, right? Because you said these, and you named many different experiences, and I know there are others because I was standing next to you when other things happened that you didn't mention. Um, so I know there are other things. But one of the things, despite all of those instances, I guess my question is, how did you keep going? Why, why did you give all of us the benefit of your perseverance when you could have just said, you know what, I'm not going to put up with that. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to go be with people who actually appreciate what I have to offer here. What, how did you keep going? So I have multiple answers to that question. The first one is I was raised in a family where you just don't let yourself lose to racism or racists. So like, if I'm going to go do something different, it's going to be because I chose it, not because some racist ripped it out of my hands. Mm. My great-grandfather, who my grandmother tells me I'm very much alike, so my grandmother's father, uh, one day he was walking home from a store, and two white teenagers, my grandfather, was his name was Haston, and he was you know, an adult, he had children, and these teenagers were picking on him, and I was walking home from this store, and the teenagers were trying to get him to respond to being called a boy. And my grandmother's father wouldn't do that. He wouldn't respond to being called a boy. So they follow him all the way home. 
he went into his house and he got a shotgun and he came out and he pointed it at these boys and he said, you guys may be able to torment me. You may even be able to lynch and kill me. And this is in Chula, Mississippi, when my grandmother was a child. So we're going back to like the 1930s. And by the way, the first year where there was not a lynching in the American South was in the 1960s. So lynching is a real possibility to my grandmother's father. And he says, you guys may kill me, but I'm going to take one of you with me. So these teenagers go out into the community and tell everybody what Haston had done. And they labeled him crazy. Because I once asked my grandmother, how did you survive living in Chula, Mississippi in the 1930s and 40s? And she told me that story and said, after that, everybody left us alone because we were crazy Haston's children. And I have that blood coursing through my body. So like, if you think I'm going to back down to a challenge as weak as racism, then you got another thing coming because I don't think racism, I think, I don't, I think love will eventually win. I think right will eventually win. So it's just not in me to let an idiot, racist, bigot, privileged, biased person put a limitation on me. The second thing I will say is actually you, Chris, Evan, and Harvey, but most specifically you, because there were certainly times where I didn't think I could go on. And I talk, I remember one time calling you saying, I am done. Like, I am, I am done. I am going to pick another career. I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to go uh, to medical school. I'm going to, I'm going to go somewhere else. And I don't even remember what you said. Like, I was in such a dark, difficult place. I just remember getting off that phone being like, all right, I'll hang in there for just a little bit longer. So, like, I feel very strongly, like, at my lowest, like, the closest I came to giving up, there was Adam there to be like, let's just ride this out. Let's just see where it goes. And um, I didn't know it was going to end up like this. But at the moments, I always think of the poem Footprints. And I, were, I am aware that there were times in this path where there were two footprints, sets of footprints in the sand. I'm aware that there were times in this when there were six sets of footprints, you know, you and Evan, and you know what I mean? But I'm aware when there was one set of footprints, it was you carrying me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm aware that there were times where I couldn't do it. And like, you were there and Chris was there. And, and if you ask me how I did it, it was like, while I couldn't do it, you and Chris in particular would be there for me. And, and still it happens to this day. Like there are things going on at this very moment. And who do I call? I call Adam and I'm like, bro, how do I handle this? I mean, it's certainly different now because I'm in a different place professionally. And I think it's pretty widely acknowledged that I'm more of a leader in this field than I was, you know, a decade ago. And you can't really pick on the guy with the largest following in the field. So it's different, but like they try like, it, like at this very moment, there are things happening. And it's just like, have you not learned? I am A, not going to back down. And I got my squad with me. Like, we're going to be here. So how do I persevere? And I, and I guess the third answer is at the end of the day, I love the work. I'm not good and I've never been good at a whole bunch of things. Like, there are lots of people who have lots of talents where it's like, like I could have become a, a doctor or an accountant or a singer or whatever. Uh, that's just not been me. Like the things I'm good at, I tend to be exceptional at like baseball, like I'm good at baseball and I'm really good at baseball. Um, but I'm not like, but the things I'm good at, 
they're limited. Like I, <laughs> I, I didn't have a lot of those. I just love doing the thing that I'm good at. And I love helping people. And I love teaching people because teaching is just another avenue of help. I love working with clients, but I also love working with therapists and watching them become a better clinical version of themselves. Like I genuinely love that. And I think I couldn't let someone rip something out of my life that I loved. But for me, it's really that simple. Or I couldn't easily, because I did come close. Like I wouldn't, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you like I'm, I'm somehow indestructible, but it, I couldn't easily let them take something out of my life that I loved. Obviously, we are all better as a result of you sticking around and putting up with a lot. Major social movements are usually started by one or two people, right? You've mentioned Colin Kaepernick several times during this experience, and he took a personal stand. I don't think he was trying to start a movement when he first took a knee, right? He was taking a personal stand. And I think um, in some sense, you are the, the Colin Kaepernick of solution-focused brief therapy, where you you stuck around, you you hung in there through a lot of difficulty and challenge and as a result, we're now experiencing change. We're now experiencing an environment that's much more welcoming, much more accepting, much more aware of what we've done wrong and how we can, how we can change that going forward. So I think we as a field are indebted to your ability to hang in there, even when it was really, really challenging. Well, I'm indebted to your ability to let me lean on you because Adam, I couldn't, I, there's just no way. There's just, it just, I don't know how I could have done it. And it's interesting, I think about that because recently I was asked, so one of the organizations that, that had treated me quite poorly over the years was the Solution Focus Brief Therapy Association. And they've recently asked me to do something somewhat front and center at their next conference. And I know that part of this is because like, this is an organization has been exclusively white. I know part of it is like, their, I'm willing to, to say like their seemingly genuine desire to change that. But had we not stuck this out, there would be no black person that they could turn to, to include in a prominent way. Because one of the horrible things about systemic racism is like, if I exclude, I'll pick on like Harvard, let's say Harvard is a, like a highly esteemed university. So let's, let's hypothetically say Harvard has never graduated a black person. And then one day someone's like, hey, Harvard, all your students are white. And then Harvard says, oh, you're right. We need to change that. Let's highlight a black graduate. Well, if you'd never graduated one, there's not one there to now highlight. And it's one of the excuses we use. Like we tried, but there were, we genuinely looked, but there were no people to look. One of the things I'm currently proud of is because we stuck it out, when the SFBTA seems to be making a genuine shift, there is a, a prominent black person who has spent their career writing books, conducting research, doing all of the things to be professionally relevant. So they can't pretend it doesn't, it, like they can't have that out. Like we really looked, we just couldn't find one hmm. because we took it out. Because I am that lone person. If I had quit 10 years ago, they'd be saying that same thing. We'd love to have a black person do a keynote but we couldn't find a prominent one without really realizing that the system prevented a prominent one from happening. Our ability to fight the system is what is allowing change to happen, I think. 
So I, I mean, I appreciate being referred to as the Colin Kaepernick of this because um, I'm quite proud of that. You know, I put up with a lot of bullshit and, um, and I'm proud of the fact that I did because now there is a prominent leading voice. Perhaps the most leading voice is a black voice. And now when these organizations are like, let's see if we can diversify, there's actually someone who deserves that space. Yeah. And it was hard to get here. So I am not ashamed at all about being proud of where this is. And if anybody has a problem with me saying I'm probably the most prominent leading voice right now can kiss my ass because I had to work really hard to get here. And if that offends you, I don't care <laughs> um, because it, it's something I'm very proud of because I, I had to jump over more hurdles than just degrees. And I had to jump over more hurdles than just credentials. There was more things in my way. And I have a very strong sense of pride about that. And, and if you know me, you know, my grandmother respected her father and his ability to protect his family in 1930 Chula, Mississippi. And I'm very proud of the fact that if my grandmother were here, she'd be proud of me for my ability to get through all of this. And like I said, if that offends some of y'all, get over it because I don't care. <laughs> I don't care how you feel about it, to be honest with you. I agree. I think we can only be grateful that your voice is one, the leading voice in solution-focused brief therapy. And I think in some sense, your voice makes us all the richer because now we're not just listening to ourselves anymore. Now we're listening mm -hmm. to something different that's making us all have to change and appreciate. Maybe there's something out there that has value that doesn't sound like we sound. So what are your ideas about how do we keep this window open? And, and maybe like on a micro level, like in the solution focused world, how do we keep this window open to continue to diversify? But even beyond that, just as a, as a society, how do we make sure um, that we are addressing these things and leading to real change in your opinion? I think we have to, look, be very purposeful about finding people who can bring something different to our experience. I think about, obviously, I think about you and I think about what you have done for this field, but I think about people all over the world, right, who come, who are learning this, who are experiencing this, who are utilizing this in such different ways. I think about Jackie in South Africa, right, who is, who is teaching the most rural populations, how to have these kinds of conversations. I think about Jasim in India, who is taking this to probably one of the largest audiences out there. And most of the Western world doesn't even know that he's doing this. I think being right. purposeful about finding those people who are, who are doing this in really meaningful ways. And in some sense, asking them the same question I ask you of, how are you making this work when all of the odds are stacked against you? Right. I think purposefully seeking out, um, I know that in China and in Korea, there are pockets of people who are applying this approach in ways that we couldn't even imagine. So to bring those people together and say, you know what, instead of us thinking we came from the place where this was founded, we had the opportunity and the privilege to learn at the feet of Steve and Insu, maybe we need to say, how is this 
still working? How is this working in places where no one ever got the privilege of meeting Steve and Insu? What evolutions, what changes have they made that perhaps make it better than Steve or Insu could ever have imagined that it could be? Because they had one world view. And perhaps rather than trying to say, we have to be purists and do it this way and do it the way that Steve and Insu said it needed to be done, maybe we need to say, what's working out there that we never could have imagined was going to work? And how do we bring that from them to us? And how do we share with them some of the things that we've found that work and help them understand why we think it works well this way? And in some sense, it really comes down to we have to have conversations amongst each other where we really value what somebody else is going to contribute to the conversation. Can I give you my, what I think, which is going to be super simple? Like that was a wonderful answer, but mine's going to be so much simpler than that. And I've heard you say it a thousand times, but we have to be a good person. Yeah. And I think to take a lesson from Adam and all of you listening to this, I want you to take a lesson from Adam. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. You have to enter into uncomfortable spaces because we come out of it different than we go into it. And the thing, the reason why I say like people like Adam have to be willing to do it. I have to learn to deal with uncomfortable spaces because I'm so often thrusted into them as a result of my social location. And I don't, and, and people sometimes think because I have professional status and my business success that I'm somehow immune to racism, but that is not true. Um, because before anybody finds out about who I am and what I do, when I'm driving down on the road, I'm just a black man. Like I could be a Maude Aubrey just jogging down the street and then they'll find out like, oh, you shot the Elliot Connie. But like, while I'm, there's no sign on my back that says I'm Elliot Connie. Like I have to deal with uncomfort. Adam, Adam has to deliberately choose it. And if we're going to make real difference, then I think non-black people have to be willing to enter into uncomfortable spaces because it is not comfortable. If I say to you, you just did something that I experienced as offensive and racist, that's uncomfortable because I, I don't believe most people intend to. I think there are some who do, but I don't think pe most people intend to. And I think when we do it, you have to deal with that uncomfort and simply apologize and acknowledge and adjust. And I think one of the reasons we've gotten ourselves in this situation is a lot of people got too comfortable being too comfortable. Mm. And I think now we're dealing with uncomfort in a different way. It's you talked about the University of Virginia. Virginia, there's a local high school here that well, it's Richland High School in Richland, Texas. They, they were the Richland Rebels and their mascot was a Confederate soldier and like very overtly Confederate leaning. And for years, parents have said that needs to change, that needs to change. And last night, the, the board of the school district unanimously voted to change their name and mascot immediately. That's not a comfortable vote, but because they were willing to have an uncomfortable conversation, I couldn't imagine, I remember, I mean, I moved to Texas well after high school. I couldn't imagine the conflict I would have as a black man. And I was an athlete, like I played a sport. So I would have played, let me see, in high school, I played football and baseball. I would have had to put on a Confederate emblem for every game. 
and every practice. And I, the conflict that would have caused in me would have been weird. That's what I mean when I say like, I'm uncomfortable all the time. I would have been uncomfortable with that as a 16 year old kid who just wants to play baseball. I'd really love to just put on like a Panthers uniform, you know what I mean? Or like put on a Blue Jays shirt. You're making me wear a logo that's associated with the darkest part of American history. And I, that's hard for me because what, what I experience is the most difficult. I do not consider myself as someone who has come from slaves. I come from kings and doctors and dentists that became slaves. Because how often do you guys think about what these human beings were before we kidnapped them? So like slavery was a detour in my history. We were not born into slavery. We were something before we were turned into slaves. And I'm proud of that. I, I come from, a, from kings and queens and doctors and dentists and lawyers and map makers and hunters and providers. And, you know, the richest history in this world is on the continent of Africa. The detour was slavery. Slavery is not the default, it's the detour. It would be hard for me to put on a rebel uniform to go play a sport to honor the detour. I think we just have to be good people who are willing to have uncomfortable conversations. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, like where does all this intersect with solution focused? It's a conversation. You change the world through conversation. And I think we do that on a micro level with our clients, but we do it on a macro level when I say to Adam, like, you just did this thing. And Adam and I have a conversation and it changes both of us, which by the way, I mean, I've never, I can't think of a single time Adam's done anything, but, but if Adam were to do something, like the world is impacted via conversation. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, I can just be grateful at this point that we've had a decade now of <laughs> having conversations and I, I look forward to more and more conversations. Absolutely. So this is the end of episode two of our conversations. And I thank all of you for listening to our chat. And I think one of the things that would be cool, Adam, is if we challenge our audience at the end of every episode. In the first episode, I challenge, we challenge you to go off and notice other people's magic. And here I'd like to challenge people to notice themselves being the version of you that is both good and capable of having uncomfortable conversations because that's how we change the world.